great to see you, Purpose Church. Today we are continuing our spring series, Before You Leave, pausing long enough to consider if, when, and how you should move on. And so many people have left so many things over the past two years that we're doing a series on it. We're looking at six important areas of life and asking the question, what should I pause and consider before I leave? Last Sunday, Pastor Eric just did a phenomenal job on before you leave your job. And then another one I want to kind of include in the series uh, from from the past, uh, back on December 27th, 2020, at the end of uh, the year 2020, Dr. Ken Miller and I did a message together at the end of 2020, which um, could have been called Before You Leave Your State, but we called it Why God Called You to Live in California. But basically, we're just going to add it into the series as well, Before You Leave Your State. But today we're talking about before you leave your faith. And I want our church to be a place for your doubts and any struggles that you may be having with your faith. I want it to be a safe place, a place where we can wrestle together. You know, so many people have left their faith during the pandemic. Uh, Christianity Today reported this week that 26 million Americans stopped reading the Bible regularly during COVID-19. But you know, this is nothing new. Even though the Christian faith is the largest, fastest growing, most diverse, and most widespread movement in all of world history, uh, people have left the faith from the very beginning, even when Jesus was still on the earth. Uh, Jesus was at the peak of his popularity after he miraculously fed 5,000 people. The Bible actually says 5,000 men. So with women and children, some Bible scholars believe it could have been as many as 20,000 people. Uh, There were about 500,000 people in Israel at that time, so there may have been 4% of the population just at this one event where Jesus miraculously fed them. But this number of 20,000 is going to drop down to as few as five people when he's executed by the Romans uh, on the cross. So that means that 19,995 people left the faith after, from the time he did the feeding of the 5,000 or the 20,000, and only five remained uh, just before the resurrection. Now here's how it happened. John chapter 6, verse 14. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, that's the feeding of all the people, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And then skipping down to verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, which would mean he's the Messiah, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Uh, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they ask him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Uh, But then skipping down to verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They left the faith, even when Jesus was still here. You do not want to leave too, 
Do you? Jesus asked the 12. There's only 12 left. And he says, do you want to leave the faith as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where, where else do we go? Uh, the others had left the faith. But Peter says, where are we going to go? Because you have the words of life. Yeah, we have a lot of things we don't understand. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are hard in following you. Yeah, there's a lot of things we struggle with. Uh, but where else would, would we go? Uh, there are so many things that are hard to understand and to handle about following Jesus. But Peter determined that the alternative was less attractive. It was even worse. Uh, Proverbs 18 verse 17 says, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems to be right. So that person online or, or that you're hearing um, that criticizes your Christian faith, the first to speak, they seem to be right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. So there are things that make us want to leave our faith and, and on face value, they seem right. But today I want us to cross-examine those things um, together. Ten reasons why people leave their faith. And for each of these reasons, I just want to give you something to consider. Now, we could talk for hours about each one of these. And, and maybe we should in, in, in our life groups or with a trusted friend. We, we need to talk about these things. And so I want you to know, I know I'm just scratching the surface. I'm just the tip of the tip of the tip of the ice, iceberg here. Uh, but I just want to help you get started on your journey back to faith. I know there's so much more you could share about each one of these 10 things that I'm going to talk about. But I just want to give you something to think about that'll help you in your step-by-step -step journey back to faith or to strengthening your faith once again. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. And we want Purpose Church to be a place. We want it to be that place where people can share their struggles and doubts and hurts about their faith. The first reason why people leave their faith, and these are in no particular order, but this is a big one here, is scientific reasons. Some people leave their faith because they feel that science and faith are incompatible with each other. But this is so ironic because modern science was basically founded by the Christian faith. Science historian Dr. Stephen C. Meyer writes, science actually got started in a very explicitly theistic, indeed Christian, milieu. Christian theological ideas had a huge role in the formation and foundation of modern science. It was, it was started by Christians, and for the most part, the, all the early scientists were followers of Christ, and it was started it was because of Christian precepts, like there's order in the world, and that, that because God created it, there must be an orderliness that we can now study in, in modern science. Uh, and so they are perfectly compatible with each other, science and faith. They just answer different questions. Science answers the how and what questions, whereas faith answers the why and the who questions of life. The science answers the how and what questions of life. Uh, faith answers the why and who questions of life. Why are we here? That's a question for faith. And who started it? 
That's a question for faith as well. There has to be a first cause to the creation of the universe. Uh, Scientists say that there's just one chance in 10 with 172 zeros after it that life in the universe could have happened by accident. Now, scientists who do not believe in God say that that must be, uh, it must mean that there's other universes in order to increase these odds. There must be an infinite or a a greater number of of universes. This is called the multiverse theory, and there's absolutely no scientific evidence for it. Scientists will tell you that. It's just a theory based on not wanting to believe in God, and so because that's not a viable theory, then it must be that there are multiple universes in order to increase our odds, and there is no scientific evidence for it. But even if the multiverse theory is true, or even if it's true for our universe, maybe we did just happen to beat the odds, who caused, who caused the Big Bang singularity which was the entire universe compressed into the size of a peach, Uh, who caused that, and who started the process, or what we call the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago? Even if uh, scientists can answer all those questions, you still have a who caused it, who placed it there at the beginning, who caused it, whether it's multiple universes or whether it's just our universe. Science can't answer that question, and it doesn't even try to. But faith does that to answer that question, and it gives that someone a name. Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then number two, there are uh, biblical reasons why people uh, leave the faith. Uh, There are things in the Bible that are just hard to understand, and they're hard to believe. Um, raise your hand right where you are, there in your living room, by your computer, if you agree with that statement. There are hard, okay, this, this is a, a safe space. This is a safe place. We, we, we can do this. Um, are, there are things, you can agree with that, that there are things in the Bible that are just hard to understand. I mean, even the one we just saw, Jesus feeding the 5,000 or the 20,000, miracles like that are hard to understand and sometimes hard to believe. There are things like Noah's Ark, or Jonah's whale, or the virgin birth, or violence in the Old Testament. And the list just goes on and on of things that are difficult to understand and difficult to believe. But here's the basic principle. All that I understand about God, all that I know to be true about God, leads me to trust Him in what I do not understand. For example, the second coming of Jesus is something that is hard for people to believe. It's hard to believe that Jesus is literally going to come back someday. But now we have what I call the 2,000 versus 500 principle. There are 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. 2,000 have been uh, fulfilled, often hundreds if not thousands of years, after they were prophesied in complete detail with no errors. Just, Just think about that. Out of 2,500 prophecies, 2,000 have been fulfilled uh, years before they were pro- after they were prophesied to great detail and 100% accuracy, and 500 have yet to be fulfilled. Now, the chances that that could have happened by chance, that they could have been fulfilled by chance, are 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. That is 1 with 2,000 zeros written after it. Now, back to the previous slide. 
um, the remaining 500 that have yet to be fulfilled have to do primarily with the second coming of Jesus, which is a thing, like I said, that is, that is hard for people to believe. But remember that, that principle I said, all that I understand about God, all that I already know about him, that's the 2,000 that have already been fulfilled, leads me to trust him in what I do not understand, the remaining 500. So if he's fulfilled 2,000 of them in a miraculous fashion, uh, against staggering odds, then we believe the thing that's hard to believe, which is that he will fulfill the remaining 500 as well. And then a third reason that people leave the faith is personal reasons. Uh, maybe you've been hurt by Christians or the church in some way. And if you have been hurt, um, I am so, so sorry. I am so sorry that that happened to you. Uh, particularly if it was by me or here at Purpose Church. And I am asking for your forgiveness. We are asking for your forgiveness. But please, I plead with you, don't let those hurts from imperfect people and imperfect churches keep you from a perfect Jesus. These hurts have been happening from the very beginning. Matthew 19, verse 13, then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuke them. Hold it there for just a second. The disciples rebuke them. Okay, they, they were being jerks here, all right? This was offensive. These parents just wanted their little kids to be blessed by Jesus, and the disciples step, step in, and these are the ones that had most closely walked with Jesus, and, and they rebuke them. They, they, they were really jerks about it. Um, let's go on to, to the next verse, verse 14. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them and blessed them and prayed for them, he went on from there. Now, what if these children or their parents had been so offended that they walked away when the disciples were mean to them, when the disciples were jerks to them? What if they had just said, that's enough, I'm walking away. They would have missed out on being blessed by Jesus. And I, and I don't want you to miss out on being blessed by Jesus, so don't let an imperfect church, uh, which they all are imperfect, or imperfect Christians, which they all are imperfect, or don't let my imperfections have you missed out, miss out by, for, on being blessed by Jesus. And then closely connected with that one, is experience uh, reasons. Uh, Christians who aren't like Christ. And, and like I said, there are some Christians that are complete jerks. Raise your hand if you've experienced that. My, my hand's up. It's kind of like falling in love. You fall in love with a certain person, and oh, they're just awesome. They're so wonderful. And then you meet their family or their extended family. And there's weird Uncle Al in Minnesota and odd uh, cousin Heidi in Mississippi. And then there's, there's a weird brother-in-law Jose uh, in Arizona. And then all of a sudden you meet the extended family and you're like, okay, he or she is awesome. 
but I don't know about their family. That's the way it is. You fall in love with Jesus, and he's wonderful. And then you meet the family. Then you meet his family members, and they are often not so wonderful. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, but we have this treasure. That is Jesus, what we call the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And I plead with you, I beg you, don't miss out on the treasure of Jesus because it comes in a jar of clay, flawed, all kinds of imperfections. And then number five is historical reasons. Uh, Historically, uh, people will say, "I'm, I'm leaving the faith because historically Christians have done more harm than good. Now, please forgive me on this one because I will get a little bit preachy on this. I'm I'm sorry, apologizing in advance. This is one that I'm just so, so passionate about. I believe with all my heart that a balanced view of history will always bring people closer to the Christian faith and not drive them away from it. I believe that history accurately and properly taught will always draw people to Christ, draw people to the Christian faith, and and it will not drive them away. Now, have people done terrible things in the name of Christ? Absolutely. Um, Today as well as in history. And, And we need to own up to that. But has the good done in the name of Christ far, 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 far exceeded the bad And I will say, absolutely. It's like this. Uh, Take a baseball player from the past. This is Joe Gordon. In 1942, he led the league in making the most errors, being being struck out the most times, and he hit into the most double plays, all during one season, 1942. And yet he still won the American League MVP award, and he's in the Hall of Fame. Okay? Uh, Michael Jordan, during his career, uh, missed more than 9,000 shots in his career. LeBron James has missed 13,282 shots so far in his career. Have these three players made mistakes? Absolutely. Are they bad players? Absolutely not. And it's the same thing with the impact of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. Christians have started the most schools, the most hospitals, the most orphanages, uh, the most advanced, the most human rights, the most charities. As a matter of fact, the whole concept of charity was unknown in the world until Jesus and his followers. In his book, uh, Who Really Cares?, Harvard secular social scientist Arthur C. Brooks says that the more Christian a person is, the more likely they are to give to charity. And that includes not just Christian charities, but secular charities, okay, like the American, um, like the Red Cross or like the American Cancer Society. Followers of Christ even give blood, donate blood at a higher rate than those that do not follow Christ. Now, what critics of Christianity do is they use binoculars when they look at history. 
Uh, remember when you were a kid, you had binoculars, and if you look the right way, something small seems big, and if you turn it around, if you ever looked at it the opposite way, uh, something big seems small. And so here's what critics of Christianity will, will do. They will look at the accomplishments of Christianity, and, and they, will, they will flip things and, and make the accomplishments that are big make them look small. And then the mistakes that Christians have made through the years, they'll look at it the right way through the binoculars and make these things that are small uh, seem big by comparison. Let me give you an example of what I'm, I'm talking about. Um, Salem witch trial. Uh, you would think, reading some accounts of history and, and how much emphasis is given to it, you would think that all Christians have been up to over the last 2,000 years is, is killing, executing witches. You, you would think that's been our thing. Okay, do you know how many people, and it, as awful as it was, I'm not justifying it, it was an awful thing, um, it was a terrible, terrible thing. But you would think it was millions and millions, right, by how much emphasis is given on it. You would think that's just like a major part of what the, we do. Nineteen people were killed in the, or sentenced to death in the Salem witch trials. Nineteen. Uh, do you know how many people were murdered in just the 20th century? Just really about 40 or 50 years of the 20th century. Um, by atheists um, leading certain countries in purges, over 100 million. See what I'm talking about? Uh, binoculars um, on the Salem witch trial, put it the right way, make these 19 look like they're 19 million or 19 billion, and then switch it the other way when it comes to the atrocities committed by atheists. Uh, flip the binoculars the other way, make that 100 million look very, very uh, small. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just read this past week that in Wikipedia, uh, what they've been doing, because it is self-governed, it says everybody can put input in it, so um, uh, non-Christians uh, have been uh, working with Wikipedia to minimize this, so that when you look up certain ones of these people that have committed these atrocities, these atheists, they're trying to minimize those numbers. That, that's, that's going on all the time flipping the, the binoculars. Uh, Kimberly and I love British detective shows. And one of their favorite themes, if you watch a British detective show, it'll almost always have this theme um, in one of the episodes at least, if not in multiple episodes. One of their favorite themes is orphanages run by mean Christians. I mean, that is just like one of the episodes will definitely be on orphanages that are run by mean, nasty Christians. And so Kimberly and I always ask, why don't they ever have any mean atheists running orphanages? Why, why doesn't Hollywood or why doesn't uh, British film, why don't they ever have mean atheists running orphanages? Here's the reason. Because there aren't any orphanages run by atheists. They were almost all run by Christians. Some good, most good, some bad. Same thing is true with hospitals. Uh, there's a St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Santa Ana, and there's a Foothill Presbyterian in Glendora, but there is no Christopher Hitchens or Madeline Murray O'Hare Memorial Hospital. Why? Because outside of Christ, atheists never start hospitals and orphanages. That's something that followers of Christ do. 
When Kimberly and I uh, did foster care, and when we adopted our children, four of our six children are adopted, uh, we determined that we were going to go with secular foster care agencies and secular non-Christian adoption agencies. Just saying, let, let's go secular on this one. But when we got into it, we found that even in the secular agencies, it was mainly Christians that were involved in caring for children, whether it be foster care or adoption. Uh, two of our boys came from an orphanage in Cali, Colombia, that was run by a dynamic um, Catholic nun named Senora Scarpetta. And so I believe that an accurate view of history will draw people to Christ because of the witness and the impact for good of Christians down through the years. So don't let people, uh, critics of Christianity, flip the binoculars on you. Uh, number six is religious reasons. Uh, people say they leave the Christian faith because they don't like organized religion. And, and, and I love to say, well, then come to Pur Purpose Church. We are extremely disorganized. If you don't like organized religion, come to our church. We have very, very disorganized <laughs> religion. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, if you're talking, however, about dead bureaucracies uh, that don't care about people, Absolutely. I am with you. I am anti-organized religion. If by organized religion you mean dead, um, lost their purpose, uh, bureaucracies that don't really care about people. Absolutely. Um, Jesus had his harshest criticism for that kind of organized religion. That's who Jesus was the hardest on. But let me make a case for organized Christianity. Uh, Jesus, we call it the Great Commission. His last assignment to us was in Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, if sports should be organized, and if businesses should be organized, and if government should be organized, and if education should be organized in order to be effective, shouldn't we be organized in carrying out Jesus' great commission? I think churches should be organized because we are, we are mobilized around the most important thing ever, this assignment that was given to us by Jesus. We should be organized. Um, Kimberly and I were watching something last night about the invasion of Normandy uh, to defeat Adolf Hitler, and they dropped these paratroopers all over France. They got scattered everywhere, and they gave them each little clickers so they could find each other because they knew if they were disorganized, they wouldn't be able to defeat Hitler. But they did these little clickers until they could mobilize into squads and into platoons uh, and into units because when they were organized, then they could mobilize to defeat Adolf Hitler. And the same thing is true for followers of Christ. We want to be organized, not a dead organization that doesn't care about people, but we're organized for the sake of people and to meet the needs of people and to share the message of Jesus. And then number seven is philosophical reasons. And this is the problem of suffering in the world. How can God be 
good and great at the same time. If, he, if he's good but there's so much suffering, he must not be great. And if he's great and there's so much suffering, then he must not be very good. And this is a huge issue that we could spend weeks and weeks on. But let, let, me, just, let me just say this. I believe that Christianity has the best answer to suffering because only in Christianity do we have joy at the end of suffering and a God who suffers with us. The center of our faith is Jesus on a cross. It says that Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set in front of him. And so there's a purpose in our suffering. There's an end to our suffering. There's joy at the end of our suffering and we have a God who suffers with us. Johnny Erickson Tata writes sometimes, and she's somebody who has suffered a great deal in her life. And she says, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. In Hebrews, the Bible says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have a God who suffers with us. And he says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And then number eight, an eighth reason that people um, leave their faith is for moral reasons. Uh, following Jesus is demanding. I mean, think about it. He asks you to do all kinds of things. He asks you to give part of your money away. He asks you to tell the truth, even when it has negative consequences. He asks us to love our enemy. He asks you to love your enemy, and even if necessary, uh, to die for him. But probably the hardest thing that people struggle with is God's call to sexual morality. Um, but he does it for our own good, like a loving father. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, a city that was just completely out of control sexually. There, there were no inhibitions whatsoever. And he said to them, to the followers of Jesus in that city, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, we're not completely sure what Paul meant by this. They sin against their own body, but we, we think what he means is that nothing destroys our bodies, our health, our relationships, our marriages, our family life. Nothing destroys that like sexual sin. Um, in Hebrews, the Bible says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. You know, it's ironic that this is one of the main turnoffs to following Jesus today. Sexual, immor uh, sexual morality, sexual mores, is, uh, sexual purity, that is one of the, the main turnoffs um, and main, one of the main reasons people leave following Christ or one of the main turnoffs to following Jesus today. But it was, it's so ironic because it was one of the most attractive things about Christianity in the first century Greco-Roman culture where Christ was first preached. Historians tell us that it was just a free-for-all in the Roman Empire when Christianity first was being taught and when followers of Christ uh, first began to live out their lives. And it was just a complete free-for-all. And it was such a free-for-all that women and children and men and families 
found protection and safety in the sexual morality of the early church. It actually drew people to Christ. Historians tell us this. It drew, uh, sexual morality drew people to Christ uh, like a magnet to following after him because they found uh, security in those boundaries, security in those principles and guidelines uh, taught by followers of Jesus. And then a ninth reason why some people uh, um, leave their faith is political reasons. Um, they say churches today are too political. I was doing a training this past week uh, for pastors in Indiana. And I'm telling you, as, as we've shared together, from red Indiana to blue California, people are giving this reason for living the faith. Churches are too political. Now, I, I will admit that there are some Christians who are more Republican than they are Christian. And there, there are other Christians that are more Democrat than they are Christian. And there are some churches that are more Democrat than they are Christian, and they're more Republican than they are Christian. But it's not overly political to preach clear-cut biblical issues. Uh, Galatians 3, 28, for example, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Revelation 7, verse 9, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that is Jesus. So because of those verses and others like it, uh, we will preach racial reconciliation here at Purpose Church, and we don't consider that being too political. In 1860, the churches in the South, uh, here in the United States, the churches in the South said that you should only preach about Jesus and not get involved in politics. The churches in the North, however, said that you should preach for Jesus and against slavery, even if that meant getting involved in politics. Looking back on that time in history, which one of those were right? Uh, here's another example. Psalm 139 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, before one of them came to be. So because of verses like that and other verses like them, we will preach to protect the rights of the unborn, the protection of the unborn. And there's never been a more important time to do it than right here and right now. Uh, just that within the last few days, California Assembly Bill 2223 passed the Assembly Health Committee with an 11 to 3 vote uh, last week, protecting anyone from prosecution in the death of a newborn up to the age of seven days. So now it's not just the unborn who need to be protected in California, but also children up to the age of seven days. Christians, early Christians in the early church were known 
for fighting against infanticide, uh, the taking of the lives of the unborn as well as those that were recently born. Followers of Jesus need to be able to speak up about these things in 2022, just like Christians spoke up about slavery in 1860 without being accused of being too political. And then the final reason, uh, maybe the biggest reason of all, that people leave the, leave the faith is busyness reasons. Uh, I saw a list of some research of people who had left the faith and, and some of their quotes from this research. They said things like, I just don't have the time. Or I, I just got out of the habit. Or I just got too busy. And, and for those that would say that's what's happened, I would just ask the question, what if it's true? What if it's all true? Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. There was a man named Blaise Pascal, who was one of the greatest mathematicians that ever lived. And he was a follower of Jesus. And he had this thing called Pascal's Wager. Uh, there are a couple of charts that kind of explain it. He would basically say it's, it's almost like a, a gamble. That if God exists, um, if he doesn't um, exist and yet you believed in God, well, you've wasted some time and some effort. Uh, but if you don't believe in God and he doesn't exist, well, then your time has been spent more useful, you know, because of, of not investing time in the belief of God. But on the other hand, if God does exist, yes, then for those that believe in God, eternal salvation, and for those that don't, eternal damnation. Here's another chart that explains it. Um, you believe in God, and God does exist, eternal happiness or heaven. Uh, you believe in God, and God does not exist, nothing happens. How about if you don't believe in God, and God does exist, eternal damnation or hell, and if God does not exist and you don't believe in God, well, just like for the one that believes in God, nothing happens. And, and he would say, Pascal would say, at least it deserves some attention. Unless, at least we should pause before we leave that faith. At least we should spend time considering the consequences of if it's all true after all. We want Purpose Church to be a place where you can deal with these doubts and struggles and reasons for leaving the faith. Because we believe that they're just so, so important. So let's stick together. Let's not give up. Let's struggle together. Let's wrestle with these things together before we leave.